VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, April the 29th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this Kamau with an edition of Open Line. We're looking forward to speaking with you. Of course we are. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. Okay, let's head to New Brunswick, check in on the Don Johnson Cup. We're being represented by the Mount Pearl Blades. Not the day they were hoping for yesterday. Dropped a pair, looking for a better result as they take on the vetoes today. But let's go to a couple of uh, winning categories. The Growlers beat 12 Riviere last night, 5-2, to take a stranglehold 3-1 lead in the series. They can polish them off tomorrow night. Go Growlers. And let's go to Argentina. Team Canada, men's softball team, they're down there dominating as we expect them to be all the time. So Pera wins yesterday, 1-0 over Guatemala, and 8-1 over Venezuela. They take on the Cubans today. They remain undefeated at 4-0. Move on to the arts a little bit. Congratulations. I don't know if you've been checking out uh, Kelly Loader on Canada's Got Talent. So I've only been watching the videos someone sends to me of Kelly Loader's performances. I haven't been watching the series, I have to admit. But she's one of 18 acts that is advancing to the semifinals. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be able to see her next week. She's from St. John's. So during her initial audition, she's been getting rave reviews the entire time. So go get him, Kelly Loader. She's really terrific, and we wish her nothing but the very best of luck as she continues to display her talent on Canada's Got talent. And big congratulations to Dave Sullivan and Mary Walsh. So their show, The Mrs. Downstairs, it was at the LA Comedy Festival, uh, Film and Screenplay Festival, pardon me, and The Mrs. Downstairs wins best performances at that particular festival. <laughs> that is just incredible. So the, the little show that could, and they're off to a flying start. Two big talents there, though. Dave and Mary, congratulations to them. Okay. Here's an interesting one. It's just a couple of years ago, and I remember this story. Two years ago today, in 2020, the World Meteorological Society agreed that a lightning flash, which occurred over the southern United States, was the longest single bolt of lightning ever recorded by a man. Get a load of this. At 477 miles long, the bolt reached from Texas all the way across Louisiana and into Mississippi. In Europe, their longest single bolt of lightning was 789 kilometers, stretching from London to Hamburg. Also, the longest duration of a single lightning flash was also recorded in 2020. It was down in Uruguay, where a bolt shined for 17.1 seconds. I mean, that's pretty amazing lightning data, if you ask me. So, lots of stuff. Moving back to sports for a second. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport. The thrill of victory. And the agony of defeat. The human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's Wide World of Sports which first made its debut on American television today in history in 1961. 
considered one of the 100 best TV shows of all time. It ran all the way to January the 3rd of 1998, primarily seen on Saturday afternoons, of course, with the great legendary host Jim McKay, who was simply fantastic. You know, it gave us a taste of sports that you wouldn't normally see. And even during their preview in the opening theme, you get a look at some lacrosse and some international soccer, a goal scored by Pele, and some... uh, Downhill skiing and ski jumping, and that's where the agony of defeat comes in, of course, where the ski jumper wipes out at the very end of the jump itself. So that began in 1961. Absolutely terrific. Remember quite clearly, cuddling up on a Saturday afternoon to watch. Also talk about long-running shows. Jeopardy. Jeopardy, the original daytime version, debuted on the 30th of March of 1964. And as we know today, it debuted on September the 10th of 1984. And Canadians are cheering along our very own Mattia Roach. She just won her 18th straight game. She becomes the winningest Canadian on that quiz show, which I try to watch every now and then. It's sometimes a little disheartening to feel so stunned when you don't get very, very many questions right. But she's doing great. So the last game she won, she won just over $42,000, brings her 18-game streak, the total, $438,138. Yes, now, Matteo Roach, knocking him dead on Jeopardy. Good stuff. Okay, this story, we've, you know, talked a little bit about tax time, and we know that there's some issues surrounding EI and CERB and repayments of those pots back to the government. We know that. But this one here is of concern to some 50,000-plus Canadian teachers. So we know that teachers sometimes have to dig into their own pocketbooks and or to raise money to buy some school supplies. And so there was an established credit for it. It's called the Eligible Educator School Supply Tax Credit. Teachers now can claim from $150 to $250. So welcomed. Many teachers went ahead and filed for this particular tax credit. But lo and behold, unbeknownst to them, inside of Bill C, uh, C8, yet to be passed in Parliament, so if a teacher applied for that credit, which they looked like you could, it was right there as an eligible credit to put, just click the box and go ahead and submit your number. Now, if you applied for that credit, they're with- withholding your refund in full. Like, how does that make any sense? You have up to 10 years to amend your taxes. So if they had known prior to, they could have just uh, held over year over year and done it next year when eventually this makes it through Parliament and, of course, some headaches and hurdles inside of these debates and votes. But now 50,000 teachers, who I would imagine, need that return. CRA is sitting on the return if you applied for that eligible educator school supply tax credit. No good. And we can talk about education issues, as you know. I welcome the conversation because when you look at the polling leading up to Election Day, it's the economy and jobs and taxes and the environment and health care and all the way down to criminal justice and whatever until we get somewhere way down the list to talk about education, when in fact if we had education much nearer the top of the list, we'd be doing better in the economy and taxes and health care and the environment and the rest. So if you want to bring forward, whether it be the teacher allocation review that's ongoing, affecting class size and class composition, we're happy to take on education from any angle, as you know. Yesterday mentioned some of the most recent numbers coming out of the census. A couple of people quite cross that they think we're focusing on senior citizens as if it's some sort of problem or burden. That's not at all. My reason for bringing up the numbers the way we did yesterday is because we need to know that government understands these numbers and what they mean. Now, it also included the fact that the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador was the only province in the country, up to 21, that had seen a decrease in population. And for context, we did indeed see an additional 2,200 people move to the province after this most release, recent uh, census was released. So, yeah, 
maybe there's a trend in the right direction, and that can be directly associated with immigration because deaths still outnumber births. Then you look at just, you know, the preparation issue. In LabWest, yet another story. Look, we're all Cheryl Hardy. No seniors care in Labrador West. It's extraordinary. Then you talk about the two long-term care facilities in Central that are still plagued by some issues, and those doors aren't open for full admissions in 260-bed units. And the aging population story even extends itself to what we can or need or must do to ensure that young families stay in the province. And there is a lot of different issues, a lot of moving parts. You know, it's not the same situation for all families. But, of course, people need a job. And, yes, child care and the path towards $10 a day. But just so we have the numbers out there, and hopefully this seeps into the minds of the government because we've got to be ready. Right now, 22% of Atlantic Canadians are 65 years or older, compared with about 15% of people in the rest of the country. By 2043, that's not too long ago, not too long away, pardon me, this province, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, will be home to the highest proportions of seniors age 85 and older in the country. That category is expected to make up 6% of the population in each of those provinces. By comparison, people age 85 and older currently make up 2.3% in the entire population of the country. So just about triple. And preparations have to be made, not just for building more long-term care facilities, maybe with some more flexible ability and opportunity to age at home. And whether it be programs associated with some illnesses that manifest themselves in our older populations, whatever that may be, dementia, for instance. So they've got to get down to brass tacks and really, as opposed to four-year political cycles, give us a clear map. Because even inside the health accord, we don't even have a specific program to deal with the frail elderly at this moment. And all of those programs and the required staffing and government policy is going to have to be crafted sooner than later. And it's going to have to have a long-term vision attached or associated with it. So this is not saying that seniors are burdened. My mother's a senior. I hope to one day be a senior. So it's just about making sure that we're ready to deal with what is absolutely coming. And it's already here. And then you look at the backlog. I see the NLMA, the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, and the department are going to be discussing how to deal with the surgical backlog. Our part of the federal pot of money was some $27 million to deal with the backlog. I don't know how you use that money. I genuinely don't. Because unless we have the surgical staff from surgeons and nurses and others, anesthesiologists, whatever the case may be, you're only going to be able to do what the human resources allow you to do. So can that money actually bring in doctors on locums or cover some additional expense? I don't know. But they're talking how to deal with the backlog. And one specific area that they're looking at, of course, is in cardiac surgeries. Apparently, at this moment in time, we're operating with only three surgeons doing cardiac surgeries here in the province. They do about nine surgeries per week. Every day, the wait list grows by 11. We're now relying on some surgeons from Ontario to help us out. The most recent resignation was actually from the chief of cardiac surgery, a local who went to Memorial University, Dr. Daniel Lodge. Then there was another surgeon uh, retired, another one moved on to a new position. So here we are. Here's some numbers. There's 148 people currently awaiting cardiac surgery. There are an additional 26 people waiting for transcatheter aortic valve implementation or implantation. 573 people are also on the list for cardiac catheterization procedures. I don't know if I said that right. You know what I'm getting at. But how we actually deal with the backlog, can you just imagine being one of the people on that list? It's not just the individual who's awaiting one procedure or another and the worry whether or not you're going to wake up tomorrow. 
It extends to their entire social circle, their family and friends. So it'd be curious to hear exactly what Dr. Susan McDonald and her team and the conversation they have with Minister Haggie and his team, because those backlog numbers are simply extraordinary. And I almost don't even feel like bringing this up because it's driving me around the bend just like it is you, even if you can afford to drive. So, for the 18th time since the 3rd of March, the PUB and the price setting panel has jacked up the price of fuel, or has changed the prices. So, nine of those 18 were regularly scheduled. Well, we get used to waking up on Thursday to see what the numbers were, with a, a guesstimate offered on Wednesday. Okay. Gas price is up 8.2 cents. Now we've cleared $2 on the Avalon Peninsula once again. It's the highest uh, number since the 10th of March. Diesel? skyrocketed 30.1 cents it's 259 on the avalon peninsula it's about three bucks a liter in churchill falls in western labrador cost of furnace oil up 26 cents we're just shy of two bucks here on the avalon it's over two bucks in many parts rural parts of the province boy oh boy the pub says and they cite recent commodity market developments okay what exactly does that mean they also go on to say on their websites that such interventions are extremely rare. They're becoming to feel quite common, if I'm speaking for myself, and I would imagine for many others listening to the program this morning. So the obvious question is, where does it end? And it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. It's been uncontrollable for quite a long time. And again, I might be wasting my breath, but I'm going to throw it out there one more time. I do think it's important for the PUB to make themselves available to the media to just even give us a better understanding. It's not in an effort to browbeat anybody, but a recent commodity market development. If we had some further consideration of what that means and how that thought is applied and what they actually look at when they determine what the price of gasoline would be, for instance. You know, because people rightfully make a direct link between the price of a barrel of oil and the price of a liter of gasoline and or diesel, even though that relationship is not as direct as people might think it is. So if they're the quasi-experts in the field, please, I don't know what the hesitation is. Just give the folks some understanding of what is going on. There is no downside to that. It might not be the answer that people want to hear, but it's better than a news release that refers to recent commodity market developments. What are they? What do you actually look at? So that maybe we're armed with a bit of information where we're not going to put the algorithm into our own home laptops and try to play George Murphy, but it'd be nice to know exactly what is on the go. So please, to the members of the PUB, at your roundtable this morning, discussing the week and the weeks ahead, maybe just go around the table and see who thinks it's a good idea that they become a little bit more forthright and available to the public through the media. I think it would be helpful. I know it would be good for me. It would be good for our listeners. Okay. A story that I didn't bring up yesterday is a fellow who shot at a gay couple while blurting out homophobic slurs. He remains in prison while awaiting his appeal. But then this is also very good news because we've got to talk about the issues surrounding homophobia and whatnot because it's the time has come for that to be in our rearview mirror. This is good news. Health Canada yesterday approved Canadian Blood Services' submission to eliminate the three-month deferral period for gay and bisexual men and for other folks in the LGBTQ plus community. The questionnaire now is going to be rightfully about your sexual behavior, regardless of your gender, regardless of your sexuality, because that's all that counts is your sexual behavior. So this has been a long time coming. The initial ban was put in place in 1992. 
And it was an outright lifetime ban at that moment in time. And of course, we don't understand the tainted blood scandal of that, uh, that era. But so this is really quite good news. It was the epitome of discrimination. Because if the blood is going to be screened as carefully as it needs to be for all donors, then why were there two different levels or two different levels for the potential donors? We call it the gift of life, and now more and more Canadians will not be willing to, or pardon me, will not be willing to go and make a donation, as opposed to the thought, I'm not going in there and getting grilled and treated like a second-class citizen or less than because I'm a gay or bisexual man. So this is a good move because we always hear the commercials where they're looking for more donors and to increase the blood supply. So I think that's a good one. What do you think? Now to lighten it up just a little tiny bit. I don't know if this is light or not. So it's long been the case. If a Canadian astronaut committed a crime when they're on their way in the spaceship, then they would be held to task, taken to task and treated as a crime when they returned to the planet. Now, the criminal code has now been extended that if they commit a crime while on the moon, I guess it's not funny. A crime is a crime is a crime, right? So Canada's going to be part of the Lunar Gateway. That's a NASA-backed uh, orbiting space platform, which actually plans to go to the moon. There's a 24 years to build and operate Canada's three, Canada 3, the ARM, which has been a big part of the space program for a long time. No one's been on the moon since 1972. But now that we're going back, the criminal code has now extended to any crimes committed, not only on the space station or amongst, or pardon me, during space flight, but while on the moon. So, astronauts be forewarned. No shenanigans while on the lunar surface. All right, current Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune on the go. So, it was today in history, 1973, that the Bay City Rollers were at the Odeon Theatre in Edinburgh, Scotland, their hometown. They were teen pop sensations, the Scottish pop rock uh, lineup, which has changed many, many times over the years. The Bay City Rollers were referred to as Tartan Sensations, a really cool way to refer to a band. Now, they stepped on the stage at the Odeon Theatre uh, today in History 73 in Edinburgh. They had not yet recorded this particular tune that we've chosen this morning, but you know they had it in their back pocket. It became one of their hallmark tunes. Getting prepared for the weekend and for tomorrow night in particular, here are the Bay City Rollers. When we come back, let's talk. Don't go away. Line number two, Diane, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Um, I won't take up too much of your time. I'm no just worries. The show. I'm just calling to show my sh- support for protecting Charlie's Place from the harvesting of trees from corner work, pot, and paper. And if anyone wants to show their support, and if they can, can come to Hapleton Town Hall on May 3rd for a peaceful protest. Okay, so just so people know what we're talking about here. So Charlie's Place is about 63 square kilometers. There's an application or a plan by Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper to harvest wood right there. So we know that it's important for uh, hunting and trapping and it's uh, traditional lands. So there is a lot of concern. And even if you listen to Calvin Francis, he's the chief of the Gander Bay Indian Band. It's his great-great-grandfather, Charlie Francis, for which the uh, area is named for. So they're looking to preserve what is theirs. But of course, the plan is, imp- is approved 
But according to Pulp and Paper, and this is ongoing, they have to submit concerns from anybody that brought forward any questions or comments or concerns about Charlie's Place. So it hasn't been submitted by the last time I checked in on it. The minister responsible tells me that they're working towards it right now, but there's been at least five submissions of concern, so we'll see where that lands. But they have to, they have to supply that report before final approval is granted. Yes. Yes, because, uh, I mean, it takes 60, 70 years for the ecosystem to come back. And I've been going up there ever since I was a teenager in that area. And, I mean, it's devastation to the forest, to the animals, you know. And, uh, I mean, it's just come back. The moose and beaver and lynx and fox and minks, hawks, geese and eagles, you know, they're just starting to come back now, right? Right. And it'd be a sin to see it up. It's been done once. Why, why cause the devastation again? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think everybody does. You know, governments try to strike a balance between commercial opportunities and preservation. And there's a group uh, called Wear Act that has put forward a bunch of recommendations for further protected lands. So until Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper acknowledges what the complaints have been, then my understanding is the final approval has not been granted to them for that particular plot of timber. So uh, once again, give the folks the details where you're going to have your peaceful protest next week. Uh, we're going to have it at Dappleton Town Hall on May 3rd. And if we can come show their support, we appreciate it greatly. I appreciate making time for the program, and good luck with it. Okay, thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome, Diane. Take care. Uh, All righty, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you go. If you're interested, next week, May 3rd, at the Appleton Town Hall. Okay, am I taking uh, line one here, Dave? All right, let's go. Line number one, Jacob, you're on the air. Hey there, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad, thanks. You? I'm doing well, doing well. Yeah, I just wanted to call in, not to give too many people too many uh, activities for the next week, but there's another rally going on this one, or sorry, this Sunday. Uh, the International Workers' Day rally is going to be held at the Confederation Building at noon. It's going to be going on rain or shine, and we're going to be going out there to celebrate, uh, as you were alluding to in your opening statement and opening uh, news, um, that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of issues facing the common man, facing the workers of today, be it uh, in the health system, be it paying for gas, be it for, uh, you know, through the education. So we're really just going out there to uh, show support, show solidarity, and uh, planning on a leisurely social afterwards at Bannerman from 3 to 5. Do you have anything specific that you're going to focus in on in support for the, the common man and woman during International Workers' Day? Like, is it about health and safety or rate of pay or taxation or training? Like, is there anything specifically you're going to try to focus in on? Well, we're going to have a few different speakers. I, I say we. Uh, you know, the, the, the people who are putting on are going to be having a few different speakers there. Uh, so the common themes are going to be on uh, anti-austerity uh, against privatization, uh, and generally, because uh, it is a general sort of protest on building a better future for workers and the common man. I, I was kind of figuring that uh, the privatization would have been a key focus because, of course, I think Mary Shortle is involved, and whether it be the Federation of Labor or NAEP and others, they've got advertisements, and they're quite clear that they're completely opposed to privatization of government assets or services. So uh, the details one more time is at 12 noon on the 1st. It's on Sunday? Yeah. Okay. So Sunday the 1st at 12 noon in front of the Confederation Building and then heading down to Bannerman Park until 5 o'clock. Correct. Good stuff. I appreciate the time, Jacob. Good luck with it. Yeah. Have a good one, Patty. You too, man. All the best. 
Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Jason wants to talk about come home here. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three, Jason, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to talk about uh, come home here this year and uh, how that's going to be affected by the rising inflation and price of gas. Um, I mean, the government are very quick to promote come home year and staycations and prom- are, um, supporting local, which I'm totally for all of those things. But they're making it pretty hard with the price of gases. I mean, people aren't going to be able to afford to go camping, you know, maybe once the summer where people used to book every weekend. People on the West Coast are not going to be able to afford to, to drive to the East Coast and vice versa. And anybody coming in from away usually flies. So if they're lucky enough to find a rental car or maybe one of these car-sharing apps that they're talking about coming out, they're not going to be able to afford to pay for the gas or the gas is going to cost more than the rental vehicle. Yeah, I think we can back inflation out of it because there's absolutely zero provincial government control over inflation. And it's... It's run, It's the exact same inflationary pressure right across the country. But price of fuel, absolutely fair concern. Now, so a couple of issues. Not everyone is going to need or want a rental, depending on what they have planned for when they visit the province. But you're right. If I wanted to scoot around and make it all the way from a staking point to Gross Morn, then I would have had a rental or, you know, broad share app on Toro, whatever the case may be. I guess the, the issue would be just how much more expensive it would be to visit here, because you factor in everything, don't you? The cost to get here, the accommodations, price of gas, whatever else, you know, average prices for some of the restaurants you want to go to, because that's how travelers, I think, make their plans. They do cost comparisons that would be all-inclusive as opposed to, I wonder how much gas is and not anything else to be a uh, major concern. The Marine Atlantic bookings are interesting. They're up tenfold. So, we're going to see a lot of vehicle traffic make its way here. I have not heard Marine Atlantic report that they've lost many bookings, even though they're still running at a reduced capacity. So will it be a deterrent to visit? I don't know, I guess is the short answer. Well, for an example now, um, I'm working from home now since the pandemic started. My job allows me to work from home, which I'm very fortunate for. Um, but basically, I'm in the house five days a week, you know, eight hours a day. And the only time I really leave is if I, you know, if I need to run to the store or need to go get something during the week, that is. Um, on the weekends, we have a cabin that we go to. And, I mean, for my mental wellness, that is definitely something that, you know, we like to do. But now it costs $100 per trip there and back just to, just to go to the cabin. I mean, my truck right now is costing me about $200 to fill. I mean, like I said, um, government are quick to promote uh, tourism and especially to come home the year this year, but they're not doing anything to help with the gas prices. I mean, some of the other provinces are dropping their carbon taxes and helping with different taxes to you know ease the burden, but our government doesn't seem to really want to help out in any way like that. Like, you know, everybody's asking for those things and they just seem to... <laughs> just uh, brush it off and you know make it go away just ignore it and everybody will just be quiet after a while which unfortunately kind of happens yeah uh, there's a province dropping the carbon tax 
Um, I thought it was Alberta that said they were going to drop their oh. carbon tax. Yeah, well, not us, not us. No, I, for starters, I don't think you're actually allowed, based on the bilateral agreement that the province signed with the federal government, to drop a carbon tax. That's how we had our own unique to Newfoundland Labrador monies flow to provincial coffers versus the the federal liberal plan or scheme, whatever people want to call it. In Alberta, you're right. They put a sliding scale in place based on the price of oil. So whether it be seventy, seventy-five, eighty, eighty dollars barrel, they would be deal, dealing with their own provincial gas tax which is separate because the carbon tax, you had to negotiate with the feds on that one. So, yeah, they did indeed adjust their provincial tax on gas. That's absolutely true. And it makes sense, you know, because it's a bit of a means test. It's all, and even though I think it's a bit of an arbitrary decision to base it on the price of oil, when we, as we discussed off the top, gas is much more on the spec market than it is on the way commodities are sold regarding oil. But, yeah, they made some adjustment to help the locals. They, they absolutely did. Well, it's just going to help uh, the economy and tourism in general. Pe- people are going to do more things if they can afford it. But like you said, uh, me and my family, I mean, we're, we do, you know, we're doing well. I'm not going to say that we can't eat or we can't pay for, you know, electricity, but it does affect us in ways because now we're thinking about, like you said, everywhere we go, we're thinking how much is it going to cost us to go there and gas? You know, is it worth it spending this much to go here or there? And um, like I said, yeah, that we don't. It doesn't seem like the government is really helping out with that. If they wanted to to make it, you know, come home here and go better, I think. I mean, I mean, there's some people who are going to do stuff, but uh, I think more people would do more if, you know, if, if the government would help out a bit, maybe just by dropping the gas. Because it's going up, I mean, it's over $2 now, and where's it going to be by July? I mean, is it going to be up to 225? Is it going to be up to 250? Seems like they can raise it and drop it as, or not drop it. They don't seem to drop it, but they can raise it whenever they want. Like you said earlier, like they don't, they're not accountable to anybody. They don't have to show why they do it. They just do it. Yeah, and of course, government will tell you very quickly that they don't control the price of gas, <laughs> right? It's yeah. the PUB, and that's technically true. Government does have their hands on the levers of some of the taxes, specifically the provincial tax. We know they can't do anything about the 10 the ten uh, cent federal excise tax. They really can't do anything about the carbon tax, but there is a provincial tax dollar in there that can be adjusted if they see fit. But the PUB is an interesting entity. It's there for our protection, right? That's what we're told. They're the regulator. Now, they've been backed out of the equation regarding Muskrat Falls power and what have you. But, you know, I think it's a complicated issue how they evaluate what the prices should be and the use of the interruption formula. But for all of us to have just a clearer understanding of exactly what's going on, it's no sense telling me that it's all about recent commodity market developments, meaning what? You know, if they could just find it amongst themselves to put forward a representative, give us an idea what's going on, because they're the ones that set the price of gas, as government will tell you, but government can do something if they want to do something. And remember, Minister Cody said leading up to the budget, we'll see if more could be done in addition to the five-point plan, and there wasn't. There's certainly nothing to do with the price of gas and the price of diesel specifically, so it's out of hand up there, that much I can tell you. Well, the thing is, they can raise it, PUB, um, on... The fact that they think something is going to happen, so there may be a hurricane, it may be whatever. Like you know, so okay, we got to raise the prices because this is going to happen. But it never happens the other way. Okay, it's going to be a good year. Maybe we should drop the prices. Like, yeah, it doesn't come down that quick. But I will say, I don't think it's in anybody's best interest to have politicians involved in setting these prices. There's a reason why the PUB has a distinct role that it does. Maybe it should be a little bit more self-explanatory, but we absolutely do not want governments setting these prices and to have all the authority to set that because, I mean, just talk about what would end up happening come election day, election campaign time. 
all of a sudden, 25 cents off a price of gas. Look at us. How about that fire truck? So I think we need them to stay away from that, to be honest with you. But the PUB needs to be a little bit more transparent, in my personal opinion. That's all. Yeah, and I understand that because, I mean, that's what happened with liberals. It'll, they promised the world, and then when they got in, they're like, oh, well, now we can't do that. We're going to do the opposite of what we said. And I mean, that's why I voted for them when they went in on their campaign, and then once they got in, they didn't realize, I guess, how bad the economy was, which they probably should have, and then they decided that they got to do the opposite of what they said. So, I mean, you know, I don't think you can win that way. I think they do what they want when they get in there, and uh, they'll, like you said, they'll promise you the world when they're when they're in election time, but when it comes time to to do it after they get voted in, then... Is there anything in particular that you're thinking about as to why you voted Liberal that has not come to pass? Uh, I mean, there's... there's Back on, the, I'm going back to Dwight Ball now, which is oh, okay. back back when they were talking. You know, all the signs were around town for him to resign because of all all the taxes that he brought in and the jobs that he cut after saying that he wasn't going to do those things. And I mean, it, it's a long time ago, but it still obviously it burns in my mind because it happened and it, it makes me very worried about anybody. And people say, okay, vote for this party over this party. But I think they're all the same. Eventually, they're going to get in and do what they want, regardless of what they promise you. Well, they're very, very close, ideologically speaking. You know, I, I get a bit of a kick out of people saying, well, you know, we need conservative government. My goodness, the difference between the liberals and the conservatives is really very minor stuff. It really, truly is, because we're not talking about national politics in the province. You know, for instance... The, some of the Danny Williams years was some of the biggest uh, events of socialism ever, not conservatism, right? So we get kind of caught up in the colors and what that actually means, which is funny. But reference to that, that budget, that was 2016, and Kathy Bennett was the finance minister. And there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 250, 300 examples of increased fees, taxes, and otherwise. You know what's funny about that is had the Liberals stuck to their guns as opposed to so many people got so upset and basically they threw Kathy Bennett under the bus. In my personal opinion, that's how it all happened. There was a reversal on a bunch of different things. Now look where we are. Nobody likes to see an increase in any of those things, but had this strategy borne itself out for another couple of years, we might actually be in a better place. And I know that sounds kind of strange to say, but there was a time to try to turn the tide, and it looked like they were going to do it as much as it was painful politically, as much as it wasn't great for me and you, our families and our, our, our taxes and our bank accounts, but we might have found ourselves in a little bit easier to manage political and uh, financial landscape had somebody been willing to do what they say they always wanted to do, to make the tough decisions. There were some tough decisions made then, but then the political pressure came, and then all of a sudden they weren't as tough as they appeared to be. <laughs> That's how I read 2016's budget. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's hard. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen in the future, so yeah, difficult choices sometimes need to be made, but... And uh, I feel if, you, if you're going to make a promise or you're, you know, in your campaign, you should probably try to live up to it as best you can. But anyway, thanks, buddy. Good to have you on, Jason. Enjoy the chat. All right, bye. Take care. Uh, bye-bye. Now, I hadn't looked at the screen to see who's next. I'm talking about politicians and get out of this. And what did you promise? What's going on? Join us right after the break is the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills, Jerry Byrne. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Join us on line number one is the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population Growth, and Skills, Jerry Byrne. Good morning, Minister Byrne. You're on the air. 
Thanks so much for having me, Patty. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Before we get to your portfolio, yeah. you know, we're all struggling out here. The cost of living issues, which I know government can't control them all, but does have some levers available, for instance, in the price of furnace oils, gas, and diesel. Do you think, as a minister of the Crown, that the government needs to do something to help control those costs and maybe even relieve some of the burden regarding taxation on those three distillates? Everything is on the table, Patty, but we also have to recognize that with the federal carbon tax, tax, it is a bit of a zero-sum game in the sense that if there were any reductions in uh, in carbon or fuel prices or taxes that are imposed, that the federal government does have uh, an immediate backstop, which it imposes. So there is a bit, you know, I, I think it's fair to say it's uh, the intention of the federal government is to increase the price of fuels. That is how, well, like a syntax, that is how you dissuade people from burning fuel, from creating carbon emissions. That's their carbon strategy. I'm not talking about the carbon tax, but yep. the province does indeed have a tax of its own. I think it's in the neighborhood of 14 and a half cents. I realize there's a bilateral agreement with the feds on carbon, yep. but can or do should the provincial government do something, whether it be means tests or home heat rebates or something, because it's getting away from us where people are being pummeled at the pump. Should the province do something to curb the cost of filling up our, my rigs and my furnace tanks? Patty, everything is on the table. We're prepared to look at whatever we can do, uh, wherever the money comes from to be able to do that, to be able to create rebates or offsets. Uh, we are already providing, for example, increased benefits to those on income support in lieu of, of, uh, of heating prices, of, of the cost of heating a, a home that might be owned by and operated by someone uh, on income support. Board. There are things that are already with uh, that are that are in place already to be able to provide those offsets. Uh, can there must there be further things, Patty? I, I I cannot in good conscience pronounce to you what the. Uh, what the decisions of the government of Newfoundland and Labrador are right now. Our finance minister and our premier and others will uh, will be able to do that. But it is a um, it's it's something that obviously we are not not uh, you know seized by. What, what I, okay, fair. But what I will say is, and I think on behalf of everyone listening to this program this morning and everyone in the province, everything on the table is a little bit tired at this point because everything yeah. was on the table prior to the budget, and it turned out there was nothing on the table, nothing regarding these two particular issues: gas, diesel, furnace oils. So we can leave it there. Let's move on to Poland. So I, I saw you tweet out yesterday in reference to the census numbers that it didn't include the fact that the province added 2,200 people to the population uh, last year because the census was up to 2021 where we saw a decrease, the only province in the country. Right. I say that's because of immigration, because deaths still outweigh births. In Poland, what exactly are we doing and how many Ukrainians have chosen to come to this province because of interactions with the team we have in Warsaw? Well, we've got a number on uh, that have ready and rearing to go. There are some issues within Warsaw itself. Uh, I got to say, you know, right now we're working with the federal government to try to see if there's some offsets to some of the costs. As we, you and I spoke of earlier, there is a very stark difference between the treatment of Ukrainian refugees versus the treatment of others that have come before. Um, we'd like to rectify that. We'd like to get the federal government more involved. As we, you and I spoke of before, when Syrians or Afghans uh, came to our province, there was a reasonable, responsible, and I think effective supports that were given to them for not only their transport here, but as well their cost of living, their housing, and other, other measures. That's not happening for Ukraine. And so we are stepping up to the best of our ability to be able to support that uh, within reason, within our financial means. 
um, they're not getting any income support, and the Ukrainians Ukrainians have to pay for their own travel here. Um, that's important because they left Ukraine. This is the largest mass exodus of anyone from a war-torn country in decades. There are now 10, over 10 million displaced Ukrainians, 4 million, 5 million of which are outside of the country. Most of them are in Poland. That's why we're in Poland. Uh, we're looking at ways to be able to support them, and a charter aircraft might be an option. Uh, we're, we're actively looking at a charter. We've got enough people, uh, who um, young families in particular, with children that would like to come here because of the, the way they left Ukraine with basically nothing but the shirt on their back. They're talented, they're ready to go to work, but they don't necessarily have the cash to be able to come here. To be able to, it's, it's about $2,500 per person, man, woman, or child, to, uh, to depart one way from Poland, from Warsaw, to get to Torbay, to get to St. John's. So we're looking at all options. Patty, there's some complicating factors with that, and I'll say this out loud as a NATO has uh, NATO has just imposed a, a permit requirement on any charter aircraft entering Polish airspace, landing in Warsaw, uh, because it is a, 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 a near a theater of war. NATO now there's extra complications about getting something like that in. But I just want to say that we're we're looking for solutions here. We've got a lot of Ukrainians that uh, have basically said we would love to come to Newfoundland and Labrador and offer our skills and become uh, residents here. Let's see what happens in the near future. I do know that there's uh, five Ukrainian students that are now going to continue their scholarship to complete their master's at Memorial University. Hopefully they stay. Yeah. I know that there's been a, a, a Ukrainian uh, lady, a doctor, who arrived this week as well. Hopefully she stays. Now, she left behind her male husband doctor as well because men between 16 and 60 are unable to leave the country at this moment. So just imagine. Might be called to, call to arms. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Anyway, with our team, I know there's going to be complications with permits for charters and what have you. And and there's plenty of complications on the ground right there. But what are we actually doing? Are we looking for specific skills? Are we vetting people on the ground? Because now that the supports will not be in place financially, simply because they waived all of the paperwork and the, the bureaucratic issues until arriving in the country, are we actually saying, you know, we need IT guys or engineers or farmers or doctors? Are we doing that specific looking at skills as we try to bring them to Newfoundland and Labrador? Absolutely. Great question. So there's two things happening. We're surveying employers in Newfoundland and Labrador that have jobs that are not filled. Uh, and that could be everything from the service industry to uh, nurses, to medical professionals, to IT professionals. It runs the full gamut. If there are jobs that are left unfilled in Newfoundland and Labrador after an extensive advertising process, why not fill them with Ukrainians? That would be consistent with the way we've always done things. So we're collecting um a dossier, a database, as you, uh, if you will, if you will, of jobs that are unfilled in Newfoundland and Labrador, and employers that are actively interested and prepared to make job offers to Ukrainians. We're sending that information over to our desk in, in Warsaw, and they are actively going out and seeking those kinds of uh, those skills. So, because as you and I again, we, as you and I spoke of last time we uh, I was on with you, is that. Ukrainians have an important life decision to make. They, it's not just about, it's important, but it's not just about offering a bed sitting room and saying, I've got a bed sitting room, will a Ukrainian be interested in taking it? 
Of course they'd be interested in taking it. But they also need to know it's their only response it's only being responsible on their part. If I go to Lewisport, if I go to Cornerbrook, if I go to Mount Pearl and take up the, the generous offer of accommodations in those communities, where will I work? Will I be able to make a living for myself, which I need to do because, no, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's all about their ability to be able to, to earn a living in Newfoundland and Labrador to be able to support themselves. These are the fundamental questions that are going through Ukrainians' minds okay. when they make these decisions. So we are making it easier for them by collecting all the, the, the information on jobs that are available, collecting the information on housing, collecting the information on schools, collecting everything that needs to be done, and then sending it over to our desk of Warsaw and going out and fanning out and and, uh, and matching that up, as it were. Do we have a, a specific number of Ukrainians who have made their way to this province and or the country since the war began? No, we don't have, I can't tell you definitively. We're getting press reports of a number, of, I know of a, a number of different families uh, that have come, but there's no definitive uh, number that's being collected because, for one reason, they're giving, they're being given, and this is great, they're being given open travel permits to come to Canada. They, once they they come to Canada, they can settle wherever they so choose. They can work wherever they so choose because they have open work permits. I know that many uh, family members that we've been working with already, uh, Ukrainians of Ukrainian descent in Newfoundland and Labrador, we've been working with them to get their family members here. So there's there are several families that have come here already. But we're looking at uh, the numbers that I'm seeing in front of me right now. Uh, we have direct interest by over uh, 85 Ukrainians to want to come to Newfoundland and Labrador that if the flight were available to them, they'd be on it tomorrow. Okay. Uh, and there's more to, there's uh, there's a lot more in prospect besides that. Inside immigration and population growth, it's not just what happens when you get here. It's also what your life looks like in the future. So, for instance... How how costly would it be to get back home? Because you use twenty five hundred dollars to get here. They would look absolutely at what does it cost to see my Ukrainian friends in Saskatoon? What does it cost to get back to Ukraine or Poland or Russia in the years to come? So that's an access issue and a cost issue. As a federal member, you were quite quite vocal on Marine Atlantic, and that cost recovery model at sixty five percent really is a large contributor to how expensive it is to travel via the sea. We've lost a bunch of routes. The airlines trying to recoup revenue means it's it's absolutely out of hand for most of us to even be able to travel. So if I'm a Ukrainian or I'm a an Afghan or I'm from England or Ireland or Germany or the United States, I'm going to look at access. I'm going to look at cost. What can the government do? I know we can do something about the federal government and cost recovery, yep. but access and lost routes, even though that WestJet route direct to Dublin, Halifax just lost it. So someone else picked their pocket. What could you and should the government be doing on cost and access? So I'm going to answer that question, but first I'm going to say that the fundamental question that goes through a young father, a young mother's mind uh, before coming to Newfoundland, to, before coming to Canada, is health care. Uh, that is the biggest cost driver, that uh, biggest consideration for an ins- from an insurance point of view. Newfoundland and Labrador is um, one of very, very few provinces that are prepared and are offering MCP coverage or medical care coverage to uh, Ukrainians immediately upon arrival. So if I were a Ukrainian family looking to go to someplace in Canada, that would be the real, real driver of my decision in many respects. But I want to get, because I love 
the question and the conversation about Marine Atlantic. I um, working with Andrew Parsons, working with the government, we're we're digging in on the federal government's cost recovery of sixty five percent. It's absolutely arbitrary. You know, Patty, it is raising the costs of working and living in Newfoundland and Labrador for each and every one of us. In fact, I commissioned a study by the Conference Board of Canada, which I would be totally prepared to share with you and to, with anyone that demonstrates that the exorbitant cost recovery, the exorbitant fees that are charged by Transport Canada, I say that very deliberately because, you know what, we often sort of say, we talk about Marine Atlantic. It is Transport Canada that decides these rates at the end of the day, not Marine Atlantic, Transport Canada. So we, 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 we crap on Marine Atlantic a little bit too too much, I think, because it's really out of their control. It's really more in the federal government's control. So Transport Canada has imposed a rate structure on each and every one of us, which imposes additional costs, not only for the transportation uh, on Marine Atlantic, on the Gulf Ferry, but on the goods and services that we provide. In fact, the tra- Conference Board of Canada has concluded based on the research that they did, is that if Marine Atlantic Transport Canada were to impose the same rates, the same rate structure as found on the Confederation Bridge going to PEI, consumers in our province would benefit from over $100 million in more spending power, that we would increase our jobs by over 1,200 jobs in our province. So, yeah, so we're actively engaged in that as a cost of living issue. I I wonder how... The difference would be with the public-private partnership versus the Crown Corporation and that relationship. But anyway, I'll leave it there because I really do have to go. Can you give us an update on some of the food storage depots that were part of the conversation? I know we do a great job in the, the seed uh, the seed issue for farmers or what have you. What about the food storage depots? We've had a number of cold storages that have been built across the province. Uh, and it's, it, that was a pilot, just to explain why. In fact, I visited one uh, this past weekend uh, in Reedville, a very successful project where we are extending, you know, what farmers have encountered. Um, there is a glut on the market that comes immediately after harvest because of they have to sell, they have to sell on a spot market. They've got to do it quickly because there's no place to sell. Uh, major grocery stores. They don't want spot markets. They want consistent supply over the entire course of the year. So we established a a pilot just to examine whether or not this could be successful. Our cold storage facilities are up and running. Uh, They're very, very successful. They're bringing new life to, uh, to, to farmers and to their bottom line. I think it's something that we really need to do more of. Yeah, that and greenhouses. That's my new pet project here is greenhouses. I appreciate the time, Minister Byrne. I'm late for the news, but thank you for this. I love you. Thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Jerry Byrne is the Liberal Member for Cornerbrook, Minister of Population Growth, Immigration, Population Growth and Skills. You want to comment to what you heard or bring up a topic of your choosing? You can do it after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Uh, where am I going? Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of the Peacekeepers Association. That's Woody French. Good morning, President French. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? That's kind, sir. How are you? Oh, can't complain at all. Uh, bear with me. I may have a, a weakness in my voice every now and then for some new meds that I'm on. Um, Patty, I, I certainly want to um, um, bring greetings to, uh, on behalf of Branch 50, I'm the... Um, 
second vice president with that organization, and they're co-sponsoring us on the um, ceremony that we're going to have at the Monument of Honor uh, here in Conception Bay South this coming Sunday. Uh, The unique thing about this ceremony, Patty, is that we're commemorating um, three different events that have occurred. And, of course, one of the commitments that we make as veterans um, to our comrades uh, who have served as well is that we will remember them. And uh, that's along the lines of what we're going to do on Sunday when we remember those that served um, in the Royal Newfoundland uh, Regiment at the Battle of uh, Vimy and the landing on D-Day. And, of course, there was another incident that happened in Canada where seven paratroopers drowned in the Ottawa River. Um, And that was as a result of an exercise that they were involved in, and uh, they got caught up in a a sudden windstorm, and they were blown off course and drowned in the uh, Ottawa River. And the other event that we're going to commemorate has a significant uh, relationship uh, to the town of Conception Bay South and Newfoundland in general, and that was the crash of uh, Tusker Flight 27, which was a search-and-rescue helicopter <clears throat> uh, returning from a mission in Labrador. Uh, the helicopter crashed, and uh, all on board uh, lost their lives, including uh, Master Corporal Darren Cronin, who was from Kellegrews here in Conception Base South. <laughs> and uh, that certainly um, has a lasting effect, and uh, we remember him in a number of ways um, as well, and um, looking forward to doing that on Sunday. And then finally, I guess an honor that falls on our families, because our families serve with us, Patty, and you know from some of the discussions that you've had with with people that have served in the forces and their their loved ones that... um, you know, things do happen and had, they have an effect. And as a result of the effect on two women uh, from Conception Bay South, her honored lieutenant governor, who's going to be here on Sunday, uh, will be presenting two silver crosses. Uh, one lady lost her husband, the other lady lost her son. So these are, are the events that we're uh, commemorating Sunday. And we'd certainly love to have people come out and uh, celebrate with us. Uh, of course, maintaining proper distances and that. And, Patty, I guess the icing on the cake we're hoping is that a um, um, helicopter from 103 Rescue Unit is going to do a fly pass uh, while we're placing them a wreath. So it's going to be quite a day in, in the province's uh, second largest community on Sunday. It sounds like it. Uh, just for clarification, Woody, is your association the same as the Canadian Peacekeeping Veterans Association, or are they two different things? Um, well, they're two separate organizations. Okay. Canadian Peacekeepers Association. Um, uh, we have people who served in NATO and with the United Nations on different missions, whereas the Legion represents all veterans in Canada. Right, so the Blue Berets and what have you. Because I know in that particular association, there was some national debate about who constitutes an actual full member of that Veterans Association, which I was hoping to get to with you. But if it's a different group, I will leave it at that. Um, Woody, just give us your thoughts now on the Canadian military. And I know we're talking about veterans and the service and remembering those who have, uh, you know, 
lost their lives as a result of their efforts. But the Canadian military is having a hard time recruiting new uh, new members. And that's right across the board. Now, we do know that we punch way above our weight regarding the per capita uh, recruitment and staying with full active army, uh, pardon me, full active Canadian forces. Is it a matter of some of the bad headlines that have been given, or is it a different sense of want to serve versus years ago? And for some people in the province, it was simple as not only patriotism, but it was a job that they really needed because it wasn't one where they lived. What do you make of what's going on with the difficulty in recruiting? Well, certainly, um, you know, the leadership of the Canadian Forces uh, uh, leaves something to be desired, and um, and they're working on trying to solve that, and I hope that they do do it. Um, I served 10 years. I have nothing but um, good reports and good comradeship during my time of service, but uh, what's happened now has... Um, has certainly uh, reflected badly, and that's unfortunate because we've got a lot of a lot of good people that serve our country and uh, are willing to do what the soldiers in, and airmen and sailors are doing in the Ukraine right now in order to keep our country free. And it's just too bad that that reflects on it. And I'm I'm hoping that our um, certainly with some of the things that the government have now put in place that uh, we're going to change course. Uh, on that um, on that problem that uh, is within the Canadian forces, and we seem to have some leadership there now with new minister uh, who's committed to um, to making sure that these issues are addressed and that uh, we get away from being um, you know an old boys club as it was perceived for many years, and that um, we're able to to accommodate everybody in the Canadian forces and to accommodate them with respect. And I think we still have the respect of the public, and uh, I think that we need to do that to get more people interested in a career uh, in the military. It's challenging, it's rewarding, and um, it's one that you're, you know, you're serving all of the people of Canada. The extraordinarily terrible stories regarding leadership is one thing, but on the international stage, our men and women are highly respected uh, right throughout the different uh, forces in the Canadian Armed Forces. So, you know, it's a real crying shame that there's this black cloud hanging over them because it's not their doing. They've been betrayed. Uh, what is going to have you on? Give us the details one more time for the ceremony. Okay, the ceremony is going to start at 11.30 uh, on Sunday morning. And uh, her, her Honor, the Lieutenant Governor, is going to be there. And um, uh, we're hoping that, um, you know, some people are going to come out and um, and celebrate this event or these events with us because um, one of the commitments that we make uh, to our comrades is that we will remember them. Appreciate and this is fulfilling that. I appreciate the time this morning, Woody. Be Thank well. Thank you so much, Patty. We re I really appreciate what you and... Um, and VOCM do for the veterans of the province and keeping the the memories alive and to talk about some of the current issues that are ongoing and that has an effect on veterans. So we really appreciate that. We're happy to do it, Woody. Stay in touch. Stay safe. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. President of the Peacekeepers Association. Woody French. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Linda's in the queue. She wants to respond to something or everything she heard from Minister Byrne. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Linda, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning, How are you this morning? Okay, thanks, you. 
good. Uh, first of all, I want to say uh, uh, the last gentleman that spoke uh, mentioned how they, he appreciates everything that you do for the veterans. But uh, uh, I think there's a lot of people in Newfoundland and Labrador that appreciate a lot of things that you do for people. I just want to get that out there because I have been listening to your show for a long time and you do pick up on a lot of things and help people out. Well, we do what we can. I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but that's the life of the sitting in this chair. But thank you, Linda. What's on your mind? Okay, I just want to uh, mention um, Minister Byrne just came on talking about the Ukrainians and how uh, they're bringing in so many, hopefully, and they're going to uh, um, be looking for jobs. And and I think this is all wonderful, and I'm sure a lot of uh, Newfoundlanders do as well. Um, But given the, the... dire straits that our province is in right now for jobs. I don't know if there's anything available for for skilled and professional workers that he like he's talking about. We have a lot of minimum wage jobs, I think, uh, that need to be filled. But uh, my thoughts go to all of the public servant jobs that are sitting there, which uh, which belong to the 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 public servants that have been fired from their positions on account of their vaccine status. That's very, 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 very few. Very, very few. Yeah. But there, somewhere next but is, somewhere around 97 or 98% of the public service has been fully vaccinated as per the current definition of two, two shots. Yes, Patty, I know. I know that. But, but one person, even if it's one person, sitting... All this time, since November the 17th, being fired from their position through no fault of their own except the choice that they made for their body, um, they've been sitting with no income. They're not allowed to get EI. They are not allowed to get social assistance. What is it they're living on while they're patiently waiting for the sunshine clause to end in June, which those jobs may be filled by other people. Is it possible the Ukrainian people would be uh, um, able to take some of those jobs? And if so, what's your opinion on this? Well, I don't know. I think that's a pretty complicated question. Number one, the Ukraine is a very lowly vaccinated country, percentage-wise. So that's something I guess you'd have to consider if we're going to apply the same test to newcomers from Ukraine or wherever else in this world. Plus, I think there's a, a serious issue inside the public service with familiarity with language. You know, it's one thing for a Ukrainian family to come and get the service they need in school to try to develop their language skills. But an immediate uh, applicant who arrives, if they don't have a full grasp of the English language, which is how the government conducts business, they probably wouldn't be a very good fit for the job. They may have all these mental acuity and skills, but maybe not the grasp of language. So I, I don't know if that would be uh, something immediately available to them, unless they are bilingual, because unlike us, Europeans are bilingual, multilingual many, many times. So I think it'd be specifically related to English language skills first. Um, secondly, I'm not really sure what the vaccine mandate has to do with immigration. If you're working for the government and you there's a protocol in place, but for many other segments of society and industrial opportunities, I don't know if there's a big load of companies that have extended any vaccine mandates, to be honest with you. So, for instance, like a Ukrainian doctor just arrived this week. That's good news. Let's hope she stays. Five Ukrainians arrived last week that are going to finish their master's at Memorial University. That's excellent. Let's hope they stay. The minister did say they're trying to... uh, 
interview the potential newcomers based on their skills and education and training to maybe be able to position them with a job that's available in the province. So I think that that process makes sense to me, to be honest. Like if we can get someone who's a computer programmer living in Kiev and there's an opportunity to work with Colab software, then okay. So I think there's a lot to the question. I don't know if I'm answering it to your liking, but I think it's a big, big, complicated question. Absolutely. I agree with you, Patty. And there has to be a lot of things looked at. Uh, Firstly, in my view, I think that the public servants who are sitting home, who are being punished, still being punished for not getting the vaccine. Um, I know uh, one person in particular who is a a technical uh, computer technician who's sitting waiting since November 17th for his job. He has a mortgage, family, and uh, I don't know what they're living on. I have no idea. But I would like to see somebody from our government have a look at what's happening with those. Sure, you don't think there's very many, but Patty, there are hundreds. There are hundreds. Uh, considering the truck drivers, considering the um, the public servants, uh, some of uh, the other companies. Uh, what about uh, truck drivers? Oh, sorry. No, I'm just saying some of the truck drivers who've lost their jobs and stuff from, like, there's a lot of positions out there who well, have uh, a lot of professionals out there who have lost their jobs because they're not vaccinated with no with no type of income. I, I think uh, somewhere along the line, our government should be looking at uh, how how are those people living. Well, I do think the Labradorians, they need an income. What what is it? Why is it they cannot get an income? Okay, I think you've heard me say, if you do listen to the show, I've said many, many, many times that it's time to talk about vaccine mandates because we're at the point where if you're vaccinated, you're vaccinated. If you're not, you're never going to get it. So I think that's fair and we should be talking about it. Um, But as it pertains to truckers, what's the actual concern? Because unless a trucking company says you have to be vaccinated to operate their rigs, then that's not anything to do with Canada because if there's an issue at the border, that's an American policy, not a Canadian policy, which is kind of why I got confused with some of the Ottawa stuff, is you can you can be a domestic trucker all you like regardless of vaccination status, can't you? I don't know. I'm not quite certain about certain about the truckers. That was just... Uh, oh, okay. Um, I just wanted to make sure I was on the right page. To find examples. I know that the public servants, there are a lot of public servants who have lost their jobs, and it's not as little or as as few there's not it's not as few as what most people are thinking sure 97 percent but you know that uh, that three percent is a lot of people there are a lot of people it's just it's just uh, uh unnerves me to uh uh you know i get unnerved to think about um those people sitting home since november with no income no way to pay their mortgage, no way to feed their children. And now they have to worry about their jobs not being there in June if they're going to be filled by other professionals, regardless of what, uh, what, what country they come from or why they come. If those jobs are going to be filled by other professionals, then somewhere, somewhere there's something wrong with this picture. 
I, I mean, that's I, all I have to say. And fair enough. I've, I've been pretty clear about the discussion regarding mandates, whether it be for domestic travel on an aircraft or what have you, because yes, you we, have. we were past the, the conversation of whether or not someone's going to get vaccinated. That tale is told. That book is written and it's closed. So now, like every government policy, there's got to be a reason why, and there's got to be a way to measure it, and there's got to be a time to recognize when it's outlived as usefulness. And I think we're at that point with the mandates. So it's realistically time to have that discussion with public sector employees and for Canadians who want to get on an aircraft because we understand the protection afforded by the vaccine and it wanes way quicker than anybody who's got it wanted it to be. We know that I can get it as a vaccinated Canadian. I can get it and spread it. Now, there's differences with viral loads and stuff, but we are at a point now and aircraft travel is actually proven to be quite safe regardless given the filtration system, which I don't think we talk about enough, uh, how we approach air filtration, not just about coronavirus, but for everything else that has been problematic for people, respiratory issues and what have you. So, yeah, I think it's time to have a chat about the mandates. Absolutely. Why not? Yes, and I, I agree 100%. And you've been saying that over and over, but there's absolutely nobody coming to address it that I that I can hear on the, on the show. There's Has anyone come, come forth and addressed it as... as I, I just haven't heard anything. All I hear is that most mornings when you open your show, your show, uh, you do, you, you address it. And uh, it's like we're not getting any any feedback from it. Well, I think the only person I can actually legitimately ask the question who would hold the decision-making powers would be the premier, I suppose, because well, asking then, any other minister is basically, well, that's not really my job, and it's not really their job. You know, looking for their opinion might be one thing, but for someone who makes the decisions, that's the right person to ask, I guess, Linda. What do you think? Well, I think yes, and I think if it's possible, I, I would like to see him on the show and, and address this. This is very serious. We have people in our province starving, hungry, losing their homes, all because of a mandate that science can't even back up anymore. I wonder how many of them, if they were laid off from the public sector, went and got a job in the public sector. And that would reduce the numbers of people in that predicament. But I wonder how many have uh, been represented by that move. I have no idea, but I do know that I have... Uh, I have friends and family who are sitting now just in dire straits not being able to work uh, because a minimum wage job yes i'm sure there's minimum wage jobs out there and if they don't uh, I'm thinking once they get their savings used up, they're going to have to do something, but it's sad. It's sad. Very sad that this is not addressed. I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Patty, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Linda. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, going to take a break. Get back on track. Don't go away. Your VOCM 2022 ECMA nominee for Media Outlet of the Year. Welcome back to the show. Let's go back to the top of the board. Line number one, Jack, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Top shelf, sir. How about you? Well, I'm not too good, Patty, to tell you the truth. To wake up this morning and find out that gas has gone up another eight cents mm-hmm. and furnace oil has gone up 26 cents. I mean, I don't know where all this is going to end. But I'm going to tell you something. Now, I burn fuel oil. I burn stove oil, furnace oil, I mean. And back in December, the end of December, in December the 22nd in 2021, I paid 95 cents a liter for furnace oil. You're paying another buck on top of that now. Yeah, I know. I'm just, that's what I'm going to tell you now. Okay, sorry. And then in, in January, it went up to $1.05. In March, it went up to $1.35. The 23rd of April, it was at $1.63. And 26 cents on it this morning is now up to $1.88. A 900-liter tank is going to cost you nearly $1,700 to fill. It's going to cost you another $255 in taxes. 
So it was costing around $2,000 to fill a 900-litre tank. Now, how in the name of God are people going to afford it? I mean, when is the government going to step up and at least start taking off some of these taxes? The oil is after going up to $120 a barrel. They're reaping all the, the benefits from that. They're reaping all the benefits now with the taxes and everything. I mean, what are they trying to do to people? I mean, it's time for them to step up and do something, don't you think? Yeah, I'm not going to dispute that. My question is always, do what? Because, like, the price of a barrel of oil is just nor is just uh, south of about 110, bar- 110 bucks right this moment. So, and government, you know, we all thought, wow, look at the price of oil going. This is going to be awesome for the provincial coffers. The problem here is that the production numbers are way down. So we didn't see some big influx of cash to the provincial government because of oil, even though the price is really quite strong. So that's one thing. And inside the price of fuel, there's only one area that I can think of where they can actually intervene, and that's just on provincial tax. And that adds up to in and around 14 and a half cents, if, uh, if memory serves me. So there's something they can do there. Yes. When it comes to the impact that the increased cost of diesel has, it has a multiplier effect beyond simply filling up your diesel-run truck or your highway transport truck or what have you. So I always wonder, do what and what does that mean? For homes, if there's a means test for a home heating rebate, which used to be in place, maybe something yes. we can revisit. And remember, and this is not to be flippant, but not everybody needs the help at the same level that, that their neighbor does. So we've got to be careful that for folks who can, quote unquote, afford it, they just pay it. Those who need some help, we get them some help. So on gas and diesel, provincial tax is the only wiggle room I can see. And on fuels, we should means test it for folks who absolutely can't afford to heat up their home. We've got to see what we can do for them, whether it be a rebate or whatever the case may be. Yes, and I agree. And and it always seems to be the middleman that ends up getting getting screwed, Paddy. Like back in December, I told you the oil was ninety five cents. This is four months later, yep. and it's after Dublin. Oh, it's it's crazy. So there's something something not right. You know, I mean, the, the barrel of oil didn't double, did it? No, it didn't. December. But of course, th- and I, I understand what you're saying. If they're, if they're not producing as much, ma'am, we got all kinds of oil off of here in Newfoundland. I mean, they had to fight to get bait in north. And, and it's, it's, it's the richest kind of oil. Right, which I mean, doesn't really have a whole lot to do with know? the price of gas, though. Anyway, does it? Because we don't even have a refinery anymore that can convert crude into whether it be propane or gasoline or diesel or anything else. No, so. no, that's true, yeah. But, I mean, we, st- we still have the resources here, Patty, right? And, and I don't know, like, you're right. I mean, the, the HST on, on that now would be roughly $255. I mean, if, the, if they knock the, the HST off or even reduce it some or do something to help people, I mean, make, make no wonder there's so many suicides and make no wonder people are out robbing and, and doing stuff and that because they're trying to live. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to live. I mean, there's unreal. I don't know where it's going to come to. And, and for the finance minister to come down last month, and, and basically I think, I think it might work out to about 250 maybe $300 max for a family that's, that's going to save uh, $90 under, under registration, and they're going to save 15% HST under house insurance. That's if you got a house. A lot of people are out to renting. And you know they what? Don't even have a house. And it's not that much. It's only the retail portion of the tax. It's not the entirety of the HST. Exactly. So it's not even the break that you uh, think it is on the price of home insurance. 
and then to t- turn around and tell you to go out and buy electric vehicles. So where are people getting the money to buy electric vehicles? You go out and buy a cheap electric vehicle, cost you forty or fifty thousand dollars. It can, and then that's what I've said. Inside the five point plan, there was indeed some things that were good for folks who are qualified for it. Now they're pretty minimal too. We're talking about ten percent increases on those who get the seniors benefit, ten percent increase up to a thousand bucks per family if you're on income supplement. Okay. Yeah. That you know, that impacts well, hundred and fifty ish thousand new Flanders Labradorians, which leaves an yeah. awful load of these of the population out. And the the thing about electric vehicles, okay, fine. But when the it's rich, the rich are fine, Patty, the poor are gonna get poor and the middleman always gets screwed. The rich have been getting so wealthy throughout the pandemic, it is obscene. But, you know, even in the five-point plan, there's no need to talk about transitioning from oil to electric uh, heat in your home. There's no need to talk about subsidies for electric vehicles because folks who are considering either or, they're doing okay. They're not struggling like others are. So let's leave that for another announcement. Let's talk about the folks who are absolutely frightened to death to open the mailbox, frightened to death to pull up to the gas station, frightened to death to see the Harvey's truck out front. And, you know, Harvey's are a great company, but it's the price that we're all paying regardless who your service provider is it, it's just it's overwhelming and yeah. you know as a listener to this program i hear it all day every day and it's not just from nine to twelve i am inundated with people with the very similar stories about just how tough it is out there and it is the struggle is real as they say jack yeah for sure but patty you know in your own heart and soul that the majority of the people in newfoundland are on that side that can afford it than they are that can afford. 100%. Now, and I mean, yes, there's, there's lots, lots of well-off people in Newfoundland. Don't get me wrong, I, and, and I know they are. Yep. But there's an awful lot more people that are not well-off, and, and from the middle man down, there's a lot more of them than they are from the middle man up that are rich. Uh, no argument comes from me, Jack. And can afford it. Yeah, know? no argument. There's only you something know? like 225,000 people in the province that are even working. <laughs> so well, There you go. There you go. Yeah. Do the math. Yeah. Appreciate the time, Jack. Yeah, all right. Take care, Patty. You too, man. All the best. All right, right, bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about pensions. We're also going to talk about just how they're going to deal with the surgical backlogs. I know the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association are meeting with the minister's office today. It would be nice to be a fly on the wall because I have no earthly idea. Well, what are they going to do? You have to build more operating theaters if you don't have surgeons and uh, surgical nursing staff and anesthesiologists, what have you, to be part of the procedure. Anyway, we'll talk about that after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Uh, Jim, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Paddy. How are you this morning? Doing very well. Thanks. How about you? Okay, pretty good. I'd like to ask you a question on a MP's pension and a MHA's pension. Are, are these politicians entitled to both of these pensions? Yep. They are? Yep. So, uh, and okay, let's say they were a provincial politician in the beginning and then went federal and came back and ran again and got elected. Would he also be entitled to the federal pension, provincial pension, and a salary also? Well, you're not collecting a pension while you're getting a salary as a sitting member. But uh, provincially, you have to uh, serve five years, get elected twice. For members of parliament, you have to serve six years and get elected twice to qualify for your pension. And then there's an age at which you're at at which you're able to draw. Provincially, it's uh, 60. Uh, 55 for the Premier, but 60 for just Cabinet Ministers or members of the House of Assembly. I'm not sure of the age. I think it's very similar for members of Parliament, to be honest with you, but that's the issue for pension eligibility for MHAs. Okay, well then, uh, okay, let's say you you are uh, getting a federal pension right now, or you were an MP, and, and, and uh, you served your six years and came back to Newfoundland and, and whatever, uh, would you be able to be entitled to your federal pension while working as a MHA in Newfoundland? I don't think so. 
You don't think so? No, I don't. Uh, now, I'll, I'll, qual- I'll clarify that and confirm it, but my understanding is pensions can only be drawn at the certain age, and I think if you're sitting an elected member, you can't draw the pension until you move on to retirement or the private sector or whatever the case may be. That's how I understand it, Jim. If anyone wants to correct me, I'm happy to be corrected because I'd like to get the accurate stuff out there. So far, that's pretty good. But if you uh, <laughs> need all the uh, qualifications, can you draw these two pensions at the end of the day? Yep. You can? Yep. Okay. Well, I know there's a lot of people uh, concerned about the prices of fuel and everything right now. You talked with a guy there earlier, a guy Byrne, Jerry, Gerald Byrne or somebody. Jerry Byrne, was who qualifies for both? He qualifies for both. And did he not apply for the status pension there a couple of years ago, the Indian status pension? He did initially apply for yeah. inside the Halapu uh, band, the landless band that is the Halapu. I don't know what became of all that, to be honest with you, but yes, he did apply for status. But isn't that sort of unbelievable? And times not worrying, a guy can get two two government pensions. He's not worried about the fuel because he's also got a uh, provincial government credit card for gasoline and such. So I don't think that's his big worry right now. Of course, it's not for personal use. Uh, you can't just be zipping around, go to see the young fellow playing a hockey tournament up in St. Anthony, and use the government credit card for gas. At least you're not supposed to. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, but but okay, that's right. You're not supposed to. But if you've got guts enough to suck, not to be happy with two pensions at the end of the day and qualify for status, I don't think you're going to worry about too much about using a government credit card. Oh, I I think if they're not, then they're kidding themselves because it's not that long ago we sent some politicians to jail for shagging around with their constituency allowance. So, exactly. Yeah, I, I think they should all be aware. Well, I believe his name was Byrne also. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was Ed Byrne. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that information, buddy. No problem, Jim. I appreciate the time. Bye. Take your care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And yeah, and their, their salary is based on their top three years, uh, just like everybody else. So if you serve three years as a cabinet minister, you get your pension based on your cabinet minister's salary versus what would have been a blended average throughout your service. So anyway, let's go. Uh, line number four, Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. And happy Friday. Yes, sir, buddy. Not a day too soon. Made it to the weekend. Yep, just about. So far, anyway. <laughs> anyway, this morning, as I usually do, uh, first off, perusing VOCM's website, I see a very interesting uh, article, and it was Health Minister of the NLMA to discuss ways to address surgery backlog, which quite welcome to see, uh, most necessary to do. Currently, around 6,800 surgeries that are backlogged in the province and for varying reasons. So the revelation of fact being that these backlogs exist, well, doesn't really require a lot of medical ability or experience. I'm certainly no medical professional, but I really do not see the point in having empty operating rooms doing nothing in Stephen Mill Hospital, 50 miles away, and no surgeons, 50 miles away from a hospital where there are 11 surgeons, most of them waiting quite often on surgery times. They've had to reschedule surgeries, postpone surgeries. Surgeons sit and wait for operating room time to perform their operations while we have 
fully functional operating rooms in Stephenville. We have a surgical operating staff for now, as long as we can manage to keep them, because obviously this, these things aren't going on. They may move on to other areas. So just once before we go too far, there's actually available operating theater time and full complement of staff for the procedures, and nobody's doing them? Really? Correct. And it's been that way for a long time in this region. We lost one surgeon after another because basically they weren't able to do exactly what they wanted to do and could not get the approval. One of the surgeons that left here recently is actually a good buddy of mine. And honestly, uh, without him being here at the time, I when he, when he cut me, I probably could have died from the situation and didn't. God love him. Thank God that he was there. Uh, we've seen periods of time here in Bay St. George where we've had no surgeon, no surgery whatsoever for as high as eight and ten weeks at a time, no emergency surgeon available. While Western Health, which is about to be dissolved, so this is all about accountability now and finding who to place this at their feet. Well, I would obviously assume that since Western Health is about to be absorbed into the main system, that this falls directly at the feet of Dr. Hagee and the NLMA, which I guess to some degree is going to have some input and say as to what they do. But nobody has stood up for Stephenville Hospital for quite some time on any level. Uh, certainly, Scott Reed, if you're listening, we haven't heard a word out of you, and I guess there's a reason for that. But don't we, the, who we need to hear from is Western Health. Because yes, we do, but uh, yes. I, I'm having a hard time following this. So there's a surgical backlog across the board, yep. and we have empty theaters, full complements of staff who are doing what if they're not doing surgeries? Look, uh, I don't even understand this one to be honest with you, Dave. Makes no sense whatsoever, Patty. Now I'm going to tell you, most of this they'll be hinged upon the saying we have a shortage of surgeons. We don't have a full-time surgeon in Stephenville. We had one, quite happy to stay here. And I'm sure that he'd even come on your show and tell you exactly why he left and why he's doing well elsewhere in the whole nine years. Had nothing to do with Newfoundland weather, nothing to do with this area. He absolutely loved it. The biggest problem that he did have came down to the administration in Stephenville and Western Health, period. That's it. As far as recruitment and retention in this region it's been a joke and an absolute missed opportunity for this entire region because our actual say in the delivery of health care in bay st george has been out the window has been at the hands of somebody else it's kind of like seven mps in ottawa we don't have much say in what we can do it's the same story in these regionalized health care scenarios such as here and i i fear that it's going to get worse not better because it seems like the integration and the centralization and every all these different ideas like waste management i don't need to get in any discussion on that what that did but regionalization is being pushed back and it should be in many ways and i kind of agree with it but let's say that regionalization does work here's an example if, if people in this region were actually thinking regionalization we would utilize our capacities within the healthcare system to the benefit of the region, not just Stephenville. If we start doing more surgery in Stephenville, then there's more going to be available in Corner Brook. That's going to help people that would rely upon Corner Brook Hospital more from that region, from the Northern Peninsula and whatever. I mean, if we're increasing capacity, 
then obviously, as the old saying goes, the higher water floats all boats or whatever the case may be, we'll all benefit from it. Now, without having the time to wait for a new hospital to be built, without having the time for the new recruitment of 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 doctors, why not better utilize the efficiencies and the capability of what we have right now? Because you should not have to hear of surgeons awaiting surgical time in Cornerbrook Hospital while we got empty operating rooms in Stephenville, quite capable of going, and the staff to support it. I'll put it to Western Health. You know, it's not even the member, and it's not even whether or not people want to hear this. It's not even the minister. It's the health authority. That's the operational business that we have to talk to about who's being utilized, where, how, when, all of these things. So I was unaware that that was the, uh, the case in your region. So now I have a couple of very specific questions I can direct to Western Health. Maybe, just maybe, I'll get an answer. I'll cross my fingers and hope for the best. But I appreciate you bringing it up on the show this morning. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Patty. And it shouldn't have to be me to bring it up. We've got a lot of mayors, councillors, people in elected positions here. I'm just your average Joe that's out there that sees this. And not because I, I ain't no genius. And I didn't, I didn't just re- recently come up with a revelation that this is how to fix it. These are things that are known. The problem is the desire and the motivation to fix them, to take this out of Cornerbrook and to further utilize what we have here, maybe it flies in the face of the health accord. Maybe it flies in the face of the decision makers from outside of here. But it also flies in the face of efficiency and proper utilization of what we have. We have doctors waiting. We have patients waiting to get surgeries done while we have empty operating rooms in Steamville. Makes zero sense. Appreciate the time, Dave. Have a nice weekend. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I just had one of our faithful listeners, uh, professional truck driver Tony Power, sent a, uh, sent a screen grab about filling up the rig, and it was some $1,800. Right, And that was before the 30-cent hike we saw here on the island this morning. What the implications mean, not only for the truckers, but how those costs are passed along or how that works, I think it would be an interesting conversation coming up with uh, Jean-Marc Picard. He's the executive director at the Atlantic Provinces Trucking Association. He's up after this, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the executive director at the Atlantic Provinces Trucking Association. That's Jean-Marc Picard. Good morning, Monsieur Picard. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, thanks for making time for the show. Now, we've been talking a lot about cost of living, inflation, the price of gas and diesel. And last night, it went up over 30 cents here on the island. Yeah. Uh, you know, the obvious is it costs a lot more to fill up a truck. But what does it mean in practical terms for operations? And how do the, those increased costs get passed along? Yeah, uh, well, definitely for most trucking companies, it's their highest cost um, for their operations. Therefore, um, you know, probably nobody budgeted for these increases this year. So significant cost that we need to, to pass on to our customers. But this this is done through a fuel surcharge. So every week, um, the fuel surcharge is updated and uh, customers probably receive from their from their carriers an updated fuel surcharge now not everybody uh, passed that on everybody not everybody uses the same but it's a mechanism that's in place to protect the carrier and, and their customers because the, the diesel prices fluctuate so much throughout the year that it would be impossible to track uh, freight rates 
you know, based on that. So that's that's why the fuel surcharge was put in place years ago. Now, uh, when we see increases week over week, like we have been, uh, you're always a week behind. So carriers take those hits week in and week out. Now, we have seen some weeks where there's been numerous increases in the same week. Now, that's even more uh, impactful because, you know, you're taking those hits in the same week. So the problem we have right now, or the thing that I would that I would say that is, that is tough to manage is your cash flow. Because if you're a small operator with, I don't know, half a dozen trucks and you need to fill, fill up today for $1,600, you deliver your load, you probably won't get paid for about 30 to 45 days. So you got to carry us for told see these big increases. It's even more crucial that if you're not financially sound or solid, you know, you, you could potentially lose your business or you, you, you know, you have to display that, not display, but, um, you know, maybe, delay some some payments to to your suppliers and it's not ideal right so you need to be really uh, solid financially to be able to manage your cash because like i said you can fill up your trucks day in and day out and not get paid for 30 days that's extremely tough on a company okay so the fuel surcharge can be adjusted sometimes after the fact and the companies take the hit is this an approach that's taken, though, so they'll just charge more for the low to help offset some losses? Or no. what, what, what gets factored well, in there? It depends, it depends on the company, right? Okay. Uh, if, you, if you're in, in a contract, then no, you can't, you can't raise your rates. And it's, it's uh, like everybody's set up differently. But essentially, I'd say the majority of companies have this fuel share charge in place because, you know, it's too tough to move. To, it's too tough to... Um, just change your rates week in and week out. You can't do that, right? You, you need to. You need some consistency. It's market based. It's, uh, it's just, you know. So the fuel surcharge has been there since the '80s to really offset the, you know, the fluctuation of the diesel prices, and it protects the clients. They know what they 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 know anticipate, and it protects the carrier as well. But lately, with all these hikes week in and week out, week in and week out, like I said, the fuel surcharge is always a week behind. So you're a week, you're taking those hits. So it's straight to your bottom line, right? Um, yeah, if you get a new customer, then you can make some adjustments. But if you're, if it's, if it's um, your current customers, it's uh, can be quite impactful. And and the customers themselves, um, they're faced with, you know, these these, these increases as well. So. At some point, they have to increase their, their product cost, which ends up on the consumer. Uh, and we're already starting to see it. I read stories from the United States talk about the shortage of truck drivers. What's the status in Canada? Bad. Is it really? Uh, critical. Since COVID, uh, it exposed us even more. We obviously lost some people. Um, we don't recruit fast enough. We can't recruit fast enough. Plus, um, the industry is busy, capacity is really tight. Um, so if you look at right now the situation, we're struggling to find drivers. So most companies have 10 plus percent of their fleets parked. So you still have to continue to pay for those trucks. Um, if you order a truck today, it probably takes a year for it to arrive and, and the cost of it is, has, has gone up significantly. 
Insurance costs have gone up significantly, and diesel costs have gone up significantly. So it's it's a um, perfect storm right now, and so which is driving all the prices up. So eventually, um, consumer goods will will um, will go up as well. If, if they're already starting to go up, and not because we want to. It's it's just really where do you go, right? Um, Really, it's it's a big challenge right now. But the, the you know the bright side is that the, we're extremely busy, but the supply chain is is very fragile. When you're struggling to recruit drivers, of course, it would be the pressure to bring a driver into the fold, get them accredited and licensed and trained and out the door. But there's long been a concern with the amount of hours behind the wheel and the type of training offered to truck drivers before they hit the open road as professional carriers. So, what goes yeah. on on that front? Well, I mean, we uh, we all have regulations to follow. Um, Are they as tight as they need to be, though? Because there's been concern about the amount of training associated with the driver before they're out there. Well, the training, the training, there, uh, I, I would advocate that we need more uh, regulated training. Um, now, mind you, that a company, any good company, is not going to hire someone coming off the streets without training. If they do, well. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably going to cost them uh, at the end, whether it's an accident or tickets or whatever. But, you know, we, we need more consistent training across Canada, across Atlantic Canada. Uh, we need, you know, minimum 12 weeks training, and it's got to be mandated by the government. Um, you know, most provinces have mandatory entry-level training, which is which is the bare minimum of training uh, to get you going to go get your class one. But, you know, we, we don't want anybody to hit the road without um, the 12 week training at least because it's, it's a complex piece of equipment and there's, there's lots of unknowns out there. And um, yeah, it's, it's extremely, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough job. It's a difficult job, and, and that's why you need to make sure that you're you're good to do that job, and that you uh, get the proper training and the coaches and the experience, you know, that support um, these young people coming into the industry. It's very important. I mean, um, if, if you if you get hired tomorrow from a company from Newfoundland, you have two weeks training. They tell you, okay, here are the keys. You got to bring this load to Toronto. I can't imagine someone that's not gonna be extremely nervous doing that right but if you have 12 weeks and then an extra four weeks of on the job training with an experienced driver you know you probably feel pretty good but uh which is which you know what i mean so so there's there's lack of inconsistency across the board and from that standpoint so we need to really try to align the provinces better when it comes to training uh, last one, and there's, you know, I know they have to keep logs so that they can only drive X amount of hours per day, per week and stuff, but how and when do truck drivers get paid? For instance, if I'm in a long lineup, whether it be the foolishness at the Texas border or whether it be crossing the United States or for loading or offloading, are they getting paid or are they simply getting paid per load, per kilometer? How does that work? They get, they get paid per mile, um, but we're, that's starting to change. And again, that's, that's, that's part of the the issue, right? Um, you're not going to attract people if you, you know, if a driver is waiting four hours in line and doesn't get paid. Um, it's not the greatest formula, right? And nobody like if if 
if I'm sitting in front of my computer and it crashes and I go home because I can't do anything and my employer says, well, we're not going to pay you for that half day, I won't be happy because it's not my fault. Uh, It's the same concept for a truck driver. And I think that the old mentality was, well, you only get paid by per per mile. But now with the uh, driver crunch and uh, the industry is being – is changing. Some of these drivers now will be paid for waiting, will be paid overtime, et cetera, et cetera. So it's uh, it's really, uh, you know, it takes time. You know, it's not going to happen overnight, but, you know, some, some carriers across Canada are starting to do it, and it's just a matter of time before everyone follows suit. Appreciate making time for the show this morning, Jean-Marc. No worries. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. As Jean-Marc Picard, he's the Executive Director of the Atlantic Provinces Trucking Association. Let's take a break. When we come back, Robert's in the queue. He wants to talk about we are all Cheryl Hardy. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Robert. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. <clears throat> Happy it's to do it. Good morning there, is it not? It's, I'm calling from southwestern Ontario, so... <laughs> It's, uh, anyways, uh, I'm one of the three administrators in the We Are All Cheryl Hardy initiative on uh, uh, the Facebook on Facebook, and I'm just referring back to the issue of welcoming in refugees. Um, the conversation about expenses they they might expect to incur for travel within the province, um, and the total of four million dollars slotted for the Come Home initiative. I got to say first, we have to hope that none of those tourists that they want to attract. Um, get sick while visiting Lab City, uh, which we pretty much all know they won't do anyways. But beyond that, any of these refugees from Ukraine who might end up in Lab City with a minimum wage job for $13.20 an hour would end up stuck there. They wouldn't be able to afford to leave. This is a, I mean, this is a place where the standard wage offer by Labrador Grenfell House for personal care workers is less than $16 an hour. So it's not complicated as to why this home care first initiative is such a such a complete flop. What would possess you know what's going to possess any of these people to want to move to Lab City? Any of these professionals to want to move there? So refugees from Ukraine need to be made aware of what to expect with their health care options in Lab West if they become ill and need medical medical care not offered in Lab West, which amounts to most of what they might need. They'd be responsible for the travel fees and wait months to recover only part of it. Whereas if they were located in a community in, in other parts of Newfoundland, I'm told they would be given travel or people are given travel vouchers that cost them $95 per trip. Well, that doesn't happen in that doesn't happen in Lab City um, in Lab West. There's you know there's on our Facebook group page, Sandra Noseworthy Gillum claimed that she spent over $10,000 in a three-month period for her 16-year-old to have knee surgery, three separate trips with a parent that didn't include lost wages and that they only get part of that back there's different standards standards here you know um john Hagee apologized for comments and medical <clears throat> medical travel for labrador patients and he said and i quote cross people don't think well health minister this, this is what your health minister said but john you know john Hagee um said and I quote, please note that, note that in no way did I mean to diminish or dismiss the financial hardships that the people of Labrador experiencing experience when traveling to seek medical care. Well, I think he kind of put his foot in his political mouth right there. And he apologized for his comments, like I said, saying by saying cross people don't think well. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, freedoms says it is hereby, 
it is hereby declared that the primary objective of Canadian health care policy is to protect, promote, and restore physical and mental well-being of residents of Canada and to facilitate reasonable access to health services without financial or other barriers. Well, I think those uh, he pretty much admitted that those financial barriers are, are, are right there. And I stand to be corrected, but last the last report I could find indicated that the uh, Labrador uh, mining industry, through taxes and royalties, contributed over 22% of the revenues collected by the Newfoundland government. And I, I, and I stand to be corrected again, but I believe that last year the mining industry in Labrador boasted record profits, which I would think translates into record revenue, revenues from taxes and royalties for the Newfoundland government. The question is, where is all that money going? Because we know where it's not going. Um, what do you Okay, there was, there was a lot to that opening salvo. Um, I'm not sure where to start with any of this, but of course, when I see in my subject line, we're all Cheryl Hardy, I, I think about Angela Hardy and the fact she had to move back to Wabush to take care of her aging mother who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and the lack of any seniors care outside of the home in Lab West. But we covered a lot of ground in that opening few minutes. Would you like to yeah. focus in on one or two things specifically? Well, I think what we have... You know, what we have now, I think what we have, Patty, is this, this chronic avoidance, this chronic neglect, this chronic diversion by the, the, by the government of Newfoundland and Labrador and the, new, the, the Labrador Grenfell Health System to, to finally address with some sort of clarity what they intend to do and not just come up with a 10-year plan because in 10 years the, the, the Newfoundland government would be gone and they'll be able to hand, hand over the problems to somebody else. Now we have, we're hoping that that Jordan Brown will is is we don't know we're not sure what he's going to do with it but we um, launched a petition uh, that was under the that was that you know is within the format that the Newfoundland government requires to have have them finally address immediately the problem of that we have with all these these seniors that 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 are being separated from their loved ones and shipped out to different parts of the province so we launched a, we actually launched an, an initial uh, petition through change.org for which we had very quickly received i think it was 1200 signatures but that wasn't good enough they wouldn't accept that so we had to redo the the survey, the uh, petition in a format that was acceptable to them well we have well, I think within just a few days, 15, 1,600 signatures on these, these petitions, which now will enable Jordan Brown to stand up and say what he has to say without having to rush through it so he can say within a certain, only a few minutes what he's normally allowed to, 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 to say. So it's, uh, we're, what we're hoping is that, uh, you know, th- this whole system is really in a shambles, but my feeling is that that... The, the administration, these people need to, to start acting like Newfoundlanders and Labradorians instead of politicians. Because right now, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and particularly in Lab West, these people need ambassadors. They need people that, that, to stand up for them and give them what they, they deserve. You know, part of the problem is that, that in Lab West, the population there is, is quite small. But it's, so it, it seems to me it's quite easy to, to just ignore ignore them because they, they, collectively they're 
votes don't seem to, I would think, aren't going to sway an election one way or another. Although, I, I don't know about that, because, you know, it doesn't matter how many people live in a voting district, it counts as one seat the same as it does where I live in St. John's East. So, and I would say, and this is not to counteract your important points about the lack of access for health care, long-term care, that type of thing, because it's absolutely, obviously true. But Jordan Brown, he beat his appointment with Graham Leto by, like, a vote or two, which actually went a long way to uh, determining what government looked like. So I think every seat is equally important. You know, it's a different thing when you say seven seats in this province on the federal scheme, but every voting district, you know, look at it. We just we have a one-seat majority government here. So if that had to change tune in Labrador West, we could see ourselves back in another minority uh, situation. So it is a little bit different, but I completely get your point. I'll give you the last word, Robert, before I have to run off for the news, unfortunately. Well, we have a petition now that is going on, and we're asking all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to participate in the We Are All Cheryl Party group page, this initiative, because that's what it's about. It, it, we are all Cheryl Hardy. It's not just Cheryl Hardy and Lab West. It's the chronic neglect of seniors and the positions that this government puts them in, where they, after 50, 60 years, they see they see they find it acceptable to to separate loved ones from their families, especially like when it comes to Alzheimer's. We, the, the, there's irrefutable proof of how quickly a, a, an Alzheimer's patient deteriorates towards their eventual death when they're separated from loved ones. You know, and it's they don't seem to they don't seem willing to acknowledge this. There's this there's this culture of institutionalizing people, and and it seems to me based on the travel that I've done through. Newfoundland and Labrador, but there's this wonderful heritage of, of, of that, that includes looking after the very young and looking after the very old. The rest of them can look after themselves, but I don't see that happening now. I really don't, and I think it's pathetic. Appreciate the time, Robert. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. And you know that issue regarding separating loved ones? There's that one couple in the story. They've been together for 70 years. One of them, I can't remember if it's the man or the woman has Alzheimer's. And they've been separated because they need different levels of medical attention in long-term care. And so the woman with Alzheimer's thinks that their partner left them. Just tossed them aside. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member in Stephenville, Port of Port. He's the Shadow Minister of Finance. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Just wanted to call in and add my voice to those of callers who have already called in and those who uh, have you have said you've been inundated by about the extreme high cost of fuel in, in this province, which we continue to see going up and up and up, and, uh, and we don't continue to see no action on behalf of government. And before I get into things which I think government should do and can do. I want to tell you a quick story about uh, yesterday when I received a call from a senior. And this has to do with the amount of uh, money he can afford to spend uh, each every time he gets his tank filled up. So normally he was ordering a uh, $250 fill-up. He's been recently told by his oil company that delivers him his oil that the minimum now that they will be delivered is $450. Mm-hmm. So that has an immediate impact on him in terms of cash flow. And how does he come up with that $450? And he's really struggling to do that. Now, it may not mean that there's any real increase in the amount of fuel being delivered. It's just that the price is so high. But when he called the company up and asked them why, they cited the high cost of fuel for them to be delivering oil to their customers. 
And that's another impact of these extremely high prices that's directly affecting uh, people on fixed income, people on low income, our senior populations. I think that one gets a little bit of a bigger conversation too, Tony, because some of these home heating fuel companies, the trucks are owned by individuals, not even the companies. And the way they get paid is based on how much fuel they deliver. So I think there's a complicated factor inside the industry on top of the price of fuel and the amount, the minimum amount they deliver. Because some of that, I think, is because the contractors, they want to deliver X number of liters per day, so they get paid what they want to get paid. So I think it becomes a little bit even more complicated there. What do you think? Yeah, and that's quite possibly uh, true. Petty, and uh, it's unfortunate though because at the end of the day, the impact is being felt by again people who can least afford it. Oh, sure. And it goes back to the whole idea that you know it's just not good enough for government to sit back and say there's nothing they can do. We talked, we've talked uh, before, we've talked for days now about the the need for a home heat rebate program. We've talked about it being income tested and really uh, impacting and, and uh, applying to those people who really need it. We've talked about the high cost at the pumps and what government can or can't do. They simply say they can't do anything. Well, I think it's time that they start looking again. You know, the five cents that the pub put on for the closure of the company chance refinery is still there. There seems to be no way for that to be removed, which I find uh, irresponsible on government's part. They should find a way to do that. We've turned around, and you've talked about the taxes and their their tax. Yes, they collect 14.5 cents of their own gas tax, but they also collect HST. After they apply the provincial tax. Exactly. And, And every time the price of gas goes up, of course, the revenue from HST goes up. So it's not just about, you know, the, the price of a barrel of oil that they get additional revenue from. It's on the tax side of this. So, you know, maybe it's time for government to figure out what it's going to be, take legislatively or whatever to turn around and stop paying tax on tax. Eliminate the HST on the taxes that we already pay. That in itself would result in perhaps another five cents a liter drop in price. So those are a couple of things that they should immediately be looking at. And if the minister can't find a way to give people a direct reduction on the tax side of the equation, then maybe they should start looking at a rebate, some kind of a rebate program to do that. The other thing they can do, they're about to implement the sugar tax. Yeah. I say cancel it. There's, this is not the time that people in our province need to pay additional taxes. They simply can't afford it. And that needs to be canceled. The other thing they need to look at is they recently increased the carbon tax piece, went up by another two and a half cents. That's additional revenue to the province. Additional revenue to the province. Find a way to rebate that back to the consumers. That uh, sugar tax, very quickly, I'm not even sure it makes a whole lot of sense, to be honest, because people will indeed find options to satisfy their want for a drop of pop. I mean, all they have to do is buy a diet drink, and we're pretending that all of a sudden diet drinks don't come with additional health concerns as well. So I'm not really sure it makes a whole lot of sense, period, regardless of the additional monies people will spend. In places where it's worked, they tax the manufacturers to lower sugar content, not the end user. So, I mean, I'm not going to consume any uh, less sugar if I choose to stick with the Pepsi. So I'm not really sure that plan makes a lot of sense, regardless of the fact that it's just an, another burden to the pocketbook. I agree. I think that 
that there's been enough evidence to show that. And you're right, the, the, the areas where it's been put in place is ta- tax the manufacturer to put less sugar in. And then and that doesn't impact the consumer. For sure. And, and that's what needs to happen. But those are the things that are out there right now that government has to do. You know, it wasn't that long ago, if you remember, we all paid a levy. They had no trouble implementing a levy that was income tested. The more you made, the more levy you paid. Well, maybe it's time for a rebate program except reverse it so that the less money you have, the more rebate you get. You know, the, the government ha- simply cannot sit back and say there's nothing we can do. That's not good government, and that's not governance. And it's time for them to immediately step up and tell the people of the province how they will find ways to help them. I appreciate this, Tony. Yeah, the levy was like paying a cover charge at the door of the pub. <laughs> exactly. Appreciate this. Thank you, Patty. Thanks, Have Tony. Have a good Thank weekend. You too. Bye. That's Tony Wakeham. He's the Shadow Minister of Finance, the member for Stephenville Port of Port. Will I take the bouquet? Yeah, before we get to the break, okay, let's call line number one. Good morning, Dr. Francis Scully. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Um, thank you very much for taking my call. And I would like to thank, I've been listening to all the callers and all the thoughtful people, and um, I want to thank everybody who's trying to make things better. Um, I was calling today because uh, early next week, Father Wayne Bolton is leaving the province, and uh, he's been uh, a pastor at um, St. Pius Tenth Church uh, on a he was here twice, I'm not sure exactly how long, but for quite a long time. And he's a very um, gentle person who has provided a lot of support to people during times of illness and distress. Uh, personally, um, he would phone me regularly during the time my husband was ill, after my husband died, during the time I was ill, and just check up on me and our children. And I found it very kind, very helpful. And I know he's done that for many, many other people. And uh, so I just wanted to uh, give him a little shout out as he's leaving the province early next week. Yeah. Pius 10th was my parish as a child. I went to St. Pius the 10th Boys School. So I remember the Father Browns and Father Fisher, Father McGee, Father Holland, and other Jesuits who were part of that parish when I was a child. So where is uh, Father Bolton heading? As far as I know, he's heading to um, the shrine and I, I, in in a, the Jesuit shrine. So I think that's Northern Ontario. I'm not really, uh, actually, I'm not sure where where it is. <laughs> uh, I just know he's uh, that that's where he's headed, and it's part of all the um, reorganization happening to uh, hopefully, as soon as possible, pay to the. Uh, uh, victims of uh, horrible clerical abuse, the money that they are owed, and hopefully that will move ahead as quickly as possible. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and so, so there's a lot of reorganising happening as people try to pay for um, compensation for the for the victims, and that's why Father Walton is leaving. But uh, I'm not exactly sure where he's where he's going. It's um, I I do that he has helped a lot of people while he's been here and I just wanted to uh, um, yeah, thank him publicly. Yeah. Well, I wish him uh, safe travels and I wish him well with his uh, ministry and his health. Uh, thank you for this, Dr. Scully. Thank you, Paddy, and thanks. And, and uh, I love the idea of uh, you know, rebating people and uh, trying to make sure that the, the people, the, a lot of people are struggling. We know that, really struggling to make ends meet and uh, we need to 
do all we can to help them. So thank you. Thanks. Have a good day. Same Thanks. to you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning and the week. When we come back, Derek Butler, he's the executive director at the Association of Seafood Producers. There's some news uh, out there today. Oceana Canada talking about shutting down the Capelin fishery. They say they have compelling evidence. We'll see what Derek thinks about it right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two, say good morning to the executive director at the Association of Seafood Producers, Derek Butler. Good morning, Derek. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Grand this morning. How about you? Not too bad, sir. Okay, let's talk Capelin. Capelin. I mean, it's an important species, and I think Oceana are just uh, are wrong. I mean, I know Bob Rangely well, and we've had these conversations. There is certainly room for a Capelin fishery, and we support having a Capelin fishery in, 2J3, in, in 3K, 3L this year. There's ample science to support that. The evidence is in. And the trick with the Oceana position is they're saying, let's just do something. And I don't think that's a management response to anything they're seeing or we're seeing. Do something or do anything is not in the DFO management uh, protocols. And here's what I mean by that, Patty. Uh, they say that in the absence of adequate science, and we had a partial Cape and Acoustic survey last year, that's a problem. Um, no biomass index update last year, a lack of a fall bottom trail survey in 3L this year. But but there was positive, very positive signs in 3K. That was the science this year. Um, in the absence of better knowledge, they're saying we should just stop the fishery. I think that's inappropriate. Um, and here's the issue. We have had capelin growth this year in the science. We've got uh, an earlier beach spawning. We've got favorable environmental conditions. We've got good condition of the fish increase in capelin and cod and, and turbid diets we've got larger fish i think things are going in the right way and for those who will say well we can't have a capelin fishery because cod eat capelin well we're seeing increased capelin in cod and turbid diets which points to the increase in capelin biomass but we've also had increases in cod it's not where everybody wants it it's not back in the heydays of the 70s or 80s but from 2005 to about 2008 2J3K cod doubled. It was stable on a slight decline till about 2012. From 2012 to 2017 or so, substantial increase, more than doubled, quadrupled in biomass, and now has been stable with some variability for the past number of years. But we're at, you know, approaching in the confidence interval 60% of BLM. So that needs to be understood in terms of before we, we talk about shutting down Capelin in the absence of the science that's required and asking the industry to pay the price for that missing science. It's almost like there was an agenda. I can't, you know, I'm not saying that literally, but uh, one can be forgiven for thinking that absent the acoustic surveys that are required, the full acoustic surveys, the full bottom trial surveys and three, and three L this year, which we're missing uh, because of mechanical and vessel issues. That industry should just pay the price and we stop Capelin despite the positive signs, positive signals on cod growth. But Patty, here's the extra piece to this that I think is missing and it relates back to my first point about let's just do something. Here's the issue. Uh, we fish, what, 13, 15,000 tons of fish. I forget the number precisely. Half of that is females. What proportion of females might spawn or make it back into the biomass in terms of driving stock? It would be only a portion, and to my understanding, a few thousand, two to four thousand tons of fish. If anybody thinks two to four thousand tons of fish is driving the stock dynamic, that the fishery at a very low level of exploitation, impacting on just that proportion of the female portion of the catch, which would drive the stock or contribute to future stock growth, is what drives this stock. 
I mean, it, it's, it's almost laughable. That's the issue. And the answer is, well, it's the only thing we can do. We can't control whale diets or seabird diets, so we better control the fishery. But that's not driving the stock. Nobody thinks it is. Two to 3,000 tons of females that might contribute to future stock growth is not driving the overall stock dynamic, which, as I've just indicated, there are some positive signs, and the assessment data last year from last fall shows that in 3K in particular. We're missing it in 3L. And we've had growth in cod biomass. So what am I missing here? I don't know. Uh, it would be helpful if they provided the so-called compelling evidence because, look, as uh, the linchpin, the forage fish that is Capelin, of course, if you make a mistake over the course of a couple of years, then you really set up a lot of different species to fall back in the spawning biomass as well. But I take your point. Where they do have a point is they say, and this is the setup where DFO, whether it be because of the vessels and the parts and the maintenance, what have you, if you don't have the acoustic soundings done and all the capable research in play, you allow for these sorts of organizations to just pounce on it. So that's the place where they actually do have a point, is if we don't have the comprehensive science we need for all species, and absolutely including Capelin, it just opens the door for these types of quote-unquote compelling evidence uh, stories to manifest themselves, doesn't it? Right, it does. So no doubt we've got, as I indicated, cod growth. We've got the positive signals on biomass of Capelin, particularly 3K from last year's fall survey. I think there's positive science to allow for a fishery at the low levels we're at. But I agree with you. The missing science is a problem. The fisheries broadcast host, Jane Aidy, has talked about that in the past. We've talked about it in the past. The FAW have talked about it in the past. I mean, we missed all of 3L last year for mechanical and weather issues. 3L is probably one of the most productive and important in terms of commercial value and biomass fisheries in Canada. Like, it's massive and big value. Yeah. That's the whole thing for vessel and weather issues. That, to me, doesn't pass the giggle test. We've had money on the table, I should say DFO, not me, have had money on the table for better acoustic work on Capelin for I don't know how long, five or seven years. I think Gail Shea might have been minister. I could be wrong. Um, and haven't gotten, well, so I guess longer than five or seven, and haven't gotten that work done because the, I'm told, can't find the vessel. You know, Canada needs to be at the forefront of fishery science, and I think we need renewed investments in that regard. Otherwise, we do leave ourselves open to these arguments. Gail so Shea was an excellent minister right of... When they say oops. we need more, more science. Sorry, I cut you off. No, that's okay. Gail Shea was a, an excellent minister of fisheries if you live in PEI. I'll just put that out there. Um, I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the time here this morning, Derek, but, you know, some of these things with the, the bait fish and forage fish, the science is also tricky for lying on trying to incorporate uh, anecdotal evidence because the herring, they might be out there in droves, but not where you're used to getting them. So that's where we need the actual data in hand compiled by scientists and researchers. Yes, we can incorporate what people are seeing on the water and catch rates and what have you. But things like herring, you might have got them in this spot last year, but they're not there this year. They might be three miles away, but still in strong numbers. So that's where that stuff becomes tricky when we rely on past years and missing years and things like that. I appreciate the time, Swan, Derek. So just a quick point on that. Iceland goes out to do the work on Capelin, and if they go can't find the fish, they go again until they find the fish because the biomasses do move. That's the nature of the beast. Yeah, 100%. So there are ways to approach this in a better way. Good to have you on. Have a nice weekend. Cheers. Okay, bye, Derek. Derek Butler, the executive director at the Association of Seafood Producers. All right, we're out of time. Uh, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk on Monday. Bye-bye.